Good morning, and welcome to Current Radio. It's Monday, January 15th. Today we're looking at how classrooms are turning into nature's lab to create the next generation of conservationists, and how science centers have received $2.4 million to promote STEM education. Plus, we'll discuss the recent private U.S. moon mission launch and its potential impact on science, and how boosting microbiome science worldwide could save millions of children's lives. All this coverage and more, up next. Welcome to Current Radio's Science Station. Please enjoy today's selection of science news. In Goa, India, two young students are making waves in conservation efforts. Serenella Fernandez and Caden D'Souza, both 13, were inspired by a workshop they attended called Science and Storytelling in Nature's Lab. Charlotte, can you tell us more about this? Absolutely, Diego. This workshop was led by scientist Snigda Segal, and it was a transformative experience for these two young students. They conducted scientific experiments with plant pigments, went on nature walks, and participated in storytelling sessions centered around different types of leaves. This experience not only made them more observant of nature's beauty, but also sparked their interest in conservation. It's interesting to see how hands-on experiences can inspire young people. What's the broader context of this workshop? This workshop is part of the Greener Side Campaign, an initiative by Echoes of Earth, which is India's greenest festival. The campaign aims to raise awareness about the importance of conserving the rich biodiversity of the Western Ghats in Goa. Given that human activity is the main cause of the ongoing sixth mass extinction, fostering a scientific and conservationist mindset among young people is crucial. Segal's workshop was designed to encourage children to question, observe, and experiment with the natural world around them. It's heartening to see young people taking an interest in conservation. What's the impact of these workshops? Well, Diego, both Fernandez and D'Souza have expressed a desire to dive deeper into conservation after attending the workshop. D'Souza even stated that he wants to become a conservationist to prevent the planet's destruction. The workshop also received support from local educators and officials who believe that practical and observational learning is as important as theoretical learning. They see children as the saviors of the planet, armed with the right information and a strong connection with nature. A powerful reminder of the potential of education to inspire change. Thanks for sharing this, Charlotte. In a similar vein, North Carolina is advancing STEM education by awarding $2.4 million to 53 science centers across the state through its Science Museums grant program. Charlotte, can you tell us more about this initiative? Absolutely, Diego. This grant program, now in its sixth year, aims to enhance science, technology, engineering, and mathematics education, particularly in low-resource communities. The awards range from $14,804 to $75,000, and will be applied to the 2023-2024 fiscal year budgets of these science centers. That's a significant investment in STEM education. What's the rationale behind this move? The State Department of Natural and Cultural Resources Secretary, D. Reed Wilson, stated that science museums and educational centers spark curiosity and foster a love for scientific inquiry. They help cultivate the next generation of innovators and problem solvers. The reliance on high-quality science is essential to meet the state's big challenges in the future. North Carolina has more science museums than any other state, and this funding supports them as they advance science education. Can you give us some examples of the science centers that have been awarded these grants? 
Sure, Diego. In Beaufort County, the Aurora Fossil Museum Foundation and North Carolina Estuarium were awarded $60,000 each. The Roanoke Cache River Center in Bertie County received $75,000. The Bald Head Island Conservancy and the Ocean Isle Museum Foundation received $27,307 and $39,572, respectively. The list goes on, with several other centers across the state receiving substantial awards. It's encouraging to see such a commitment to science and education. Thanks for sharing, Charlotte. In a significant development that further underscores this commitment, a private robotic spacecraft, Peregrine, has launched from Florida, aiming to be the first U.S. mission to land on the moon since 1972. Charlotte, can you tell us more about this mission and its significance? Absolutely, Diego. This mission is the first of at least 10 planned through NASA's Commercial Lunar Payload Services Program, or CLPS. Essentially, NASA is paying private companies to deliver scientific instruments to the moon's surface. It's a bit like an Uber Eats delivery for moon science. If successful, it could open the door for NASA to outsource future robotic lunar missions to private companies. That's fascinating. But landing on the moon is no easy task, right? You're right, Diego. The lunar surface is littered with debris from failed landing attempts. Only a few countries have successfully achieved soft landings on the moon, and no private company ever has. Peregrine still has to successfully enter lunar orbit and then touch down safely. The landing attempt is planned for 23rd of February. What kind of scientific instruments are we talking about here? Peregrine is carrying five scientific instruments built by NASA and several others from different countries. Among the non-NASA payloads are tiny rovers from Mexico, which will be Latin America's first lunar mission, and a detector from Germany that will measure radiation levels on the lunar surface. The NASA instruments will hunt for volatile elements such as water. They aim to analyze how volatile molecules move around on the lunar surface, including how they are transported to the moon's poles, where they are frozen in dark craters. This could be a potential resource for future astronauts. I see. But there's also been some controversy surrounding this mission, hasn't there? Yes, there has. Peregrine is also carrying non-scientific payloads, including cremated human remains destined for the lunar surface. This has sparked a complaint from the Navajo Nation, who see it as desecration of a celestial object that is sacred to them. NASA has apologized for a similar incident in the past and has a meeting planned with Navajo leaders to discuss next steps. This mission is a major milestone, but also a reminder of the complexities and sensitivities involved in space exploration. Thanks for your insights, Charlotte. In another fascinating domain of science, the world of microbiome research is expanding, but it seems that there's a significant disparity in the representation of global populations in this field. Charlotte, could you shed some light on this issue? Absolutely, Diego. While less than 15% of the global population lives in Europe or North America, over 70% of published human microbiome data comes from these regions. This disproportionality extends to the exploration of microbiota as a therapeutic target for various diseases. Much attention is given to diseases common in high-income countries, while conditions like malnutrition and infectious diseases, which disproportionately affect people in low- and middle-income countries, are often overlooked. That's quite concerning. Why is it so crucial to have diverse representation in microbiome research? Well, it's now clear that the gut microbiota of individuals can differ significantly depending on where they live. 
This means that the development of safe and effective microbiome-based therapeutics for those living in the world's poorer regions depends on microbiome data being collected from these areas. Without this data, treatments developed in wealthy countries might not help people in poorer countries who could benefit from them the most. So what steps are being taken to address this disparity and accelerate microbiome research globally? There are several proposed solutions. One is the establishment of regional centers of excellence dedicated to microbiome research in low- and middle-income countries. These centers would enable long-term sampling of the microbial ecology in a population and drive the training of researchers. Another step is developing microbial culture collections, particularly from children, to develop microbial reference genomes specific to the local population. Lastly, fostering long-term collaborations between well-resourced laboratories in Europe and North America and researchers in low- and middle-income countries is crucial. It's clear that the world of microbiome research needs to be more inclusive and representative. Thanks for your insights, Charlotte. With that, we conclude our stories for today and look forward to welcoming you back on Current Radio tomorrow.